0: This series on uh, self-knowing, a quiet passion, it's been going on for a while. I wouldn't say it's been going on very long, but when it started, I had a full head of hair, brown, and I was 20 pounds lighter. Uh, And yet, uh, it still seems to hold at least my interest. Some of you have been here through some of it. I don't see how anyone except myself could be here through all of it. Uh, So a little bit of uh, introduction is something I like to do each time, and it's really not much. And then get into what I would like to work with tonight. What's been suggested is that self-knowing is central to the Buddhist teaching. That is, you can't understand what the Buddha is saying, no matter how many of the books you read, you can read our entire library, uh, unless you understand your own mind. And that is not <clears throat> exclusively do, that doesn't exclusively happen on a cushion or at a retreat center. Uh, self-knowing is something that can go on anywhere, at any time, in any posture, any place, under any condition. But this kind of setting, and these forms have been used for thousands of years, long before the Buddha, to help us equip the mind to know itself. So self-knowing, and it's in what is being suggested, it is, it's in the active present. Knowing, it's not self-knowledge, which is more something you accumulate, fill up notebooks with, and then maybe write your memoirs later on in life. Self-knowing is something that is a clear seeing of something in the moment, and that's its value, and then that's the end of it. Uh, A quiet passion, in that um, CNN's not going to come around to do a a special on what we do, because it looks like nothing much is going on. And yet inside, people can be on fire uh, with interest in also on fire in terms of suffering, or joy, or all the things that happen. And the looking can catch fire too, the quality of seeing. And uh, the word passion, I think, is appropriate, uh, but it's not something that's visible from the outside looking in necessarily. It's also a passion for quiet. Uh, The silence here is inner silence. Or is being able to uh, tap the mind and to discover that inside there's an enormous reservoir of silence, and more and more to tap that field of energy. It's a very subtle field of energy, and then to live from it in it and from it. Uh, in the last number of uh, these gatherings on Wednesdays, I'm taking an aspect of that, uh, suggesting that uh, what the Buddha is talking about in more contemporary language is learning the art of living. And that's really what wisdom is often translated as, learning how to live. What's implied there, of course, is that we don't know how to live. We're not doing a very good job of it. Nothing personal, the whole race, the human race. And apparently we've never done it, or at least as far back as we know. Humans have had a very, very hard time. We have a hard time with each other. Uh, And whether it's expressed in warfare or tribalism or uh, individual uh, living with with oneself, just learning how to be at peace with yourself, it starts there, of course. And then two people, a family, a group, uh, it goes on and on. Society is us, and we're society. It's not that it's out there and we're separate from it. It's made up of people. And people have, we all have these same needs and expressions and aspirations and yearnings and fears and hopes and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so, what the Buddha's teaching and all wisdom teachings is giving us some hints as to some guidelines as to how to live and also su- suggesting, uh, giving us some methods, some tools to help develop the mind so that it's capable of actually fulfilling what the teachings promise. So roughly, now learning how to live um, is self, can be, is, and self-knowing in action, uh, it, what is being s- suggested is that the art of living or skill in living is like every other art. There's so many arts. Think about it. Probably you have one. Maybe it's cooking. Uh, I'm, uh, just for fun, I'm learning about tea, and uh, seeing a few films, reading books on it. It's astonishing how much skill needs to go into making a decent cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I don't mean just throwing a tea bag and pouring, because in one sense, all it is, you throw a bunch of leaves in some hot water, and you have two, three minutes, all right, and you just start drinking, or you don't even time it. Uh, It looks, this is probably right, you don't even taste it. Then when you start uh, getting closer to it, speaking of people who've been doing it and uh, learning about it, uh, there's enormous skill from the people who grow tea. Uh, it's an ancient skill uh, that's best done by hand. And it's, uh, most of it never gets here. It's in small villages uh, in Asia. And the people who do it have been doing it for generations. They know all about soil and water and climate. And when to pick it, and uh, what to do with it once you pick it, and then that's the art of presenting the tea. Then it comes to us, and so that's just one art. I'm not suggesting that you do that, but om- anything you pick, carpentry, um, automotive skills, surgery, painting, cook—it's you know, okay, these require skills, and. What I feel is accurate to say is that what we're learning is skill in perhaps the hardest art of all. And perhaps finally the most important is the the skill in living. How is one to live? For me, the reason I think it hasn't gotten boring for me is that when I was a freshman in college, which is quite a while ago, when I was introduced to Socrates, I never recovered. Uh, the questions he asked, but I didn't know how to answer them, and I didn't have the, wasn't equipped to answer them. And then there were big periods of time where I didn't want to answer them. Who am I? How am I to live? Uh, Socrates made some very strong statements. Mm. He would say, an unexamined life is not a life worth living. Whew. Heavy. Uh, and he was asked. He kept saying, know thyself, know thyself. And he was asked, do you know yourself? And he said, no. He said, but I know I don't know myself. Now, that has a subtle meaning, of course. Uh, And then when I came upon the Buddha's teaching, it seemed like uh, they're kindred spirits. Uh, Because what the Buddha is talking about uh, is uh, you getting to know you. And it's typically depicted with someone in the seated posture with a serene look on on one's face. And that's the icon. It's not a cross. It's not a geometric figure. Uh, It's a a human figure, a human form, in seated meditation. And so we tend to fixate on that and think, that's it. Uh, Of course, if you read the Buddha, it isn't it. It's very important. But life is it. So all of this is. Uh, what I've been hoping to do is to kindle a little bit of a flame in, uh, in jumping into this art, this skill of learning how to live no one can do it for us each one of us must do it by ourselves. how can anyone uh, we can get hints just as you can learn about any other art and skill, in fact it makes sense to go to somebody who's mastered it or who's further along than you are and to get some tips no matter what the art is or the skill and so let's assume for the moment that the Buddha is, and there have been others, of course. Um, and my feeling is that often we come to meditation practice, to Dharma practice, uh, very often emotionally exhausted. Um, perhaps less so as people are start, young people are starting to come. Uh, they're not as beaten; they haven't been around long enough yet. It's not an achievement yet, you know. If you're young, don't get cocky, because you haven't been on the planet long enough to get punched around to to become like us. Uh, and we come to places like this. Just tell me what to do, and then if I do it, I'll get. I'll be. I'll be great, right? How many years does it take? Five years. In, out, in, out, in, out, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, just give me the techniques. I don't want to hear about all this art, knowing, learning, and all that stuff. I've had enough learning. Um, So that's uh, a kind of overall theme, and I've been coming at it in different ways. Uh, So just to begin with, if you are listening to this, how many people are here for the first time? Okay, welcome to everyone, but certainly if you're... Uh, it's not a, This isn't a lecture. I mean, of course, it sounds like one.
1: <laughs>
0: but, uh, and if you just sit and absorb it like a sponge, then it might as well be a lecture. Uh, it gives you the opportunity. Now, if you're very new, then you may not know this yet. So, it's, I'm not to blame... Any, not, it's not to blame anyone. Uh, Is practice the art of listening. I'm doing... I'm really practicing the art of speaking. Uh, It's it's, uh, not elocution lessons, so much as uh, seeing if I can convey the essence of something that I know a little bit about from my experience in words that can be received and translated into practical terms in our our life. Uh, So the art of listening would be uh, if, you don't, if you don't remember anything that was said here tonight, but you start to watch your own mind and see how difficult it is to listen, it's a very, very refined art. Because the mind is so busy with itself, its own preoccupations. And if you have some interest in this, agreeing, disagreeing, uh, all the different things that minds do. What you would say, what you, you're already rehearsing your question once I stop blabbing, all of that. Uh, and you can see that you're hearing something, but it's coming through a, a din of vexation and preoccupation and you know, busyness. And once you learn the art of listening, as far as I can tell, by seeing how you don't do it. And then little by little, it starts falling away, and you become more simple. And you just listen. So it's not that you have to agree with anything that's being said, but if you do that, begin to learn how to listen, that skill, see we're getting into skill now, it's something that's invaluable, not just here. Take it home to all your relationships. This is a relationship of a kind. OK. Um, <clears throat> as some of you know, uh, the way I've been, I have been—I give these talks, it's not that I'm writing a systematic textbook on this subject. To put it mildly, I'm not. I don't have a clue as to what I'm going to say. Um, the way I work is, I get a theme, although I have this overall framework, which I have just, as best I can, could share it with you. Uh, Once I get a theme, and then I just just let it happen, it's sort of reflections. So I offer these as reflections. And I didn't have a theme until about 6 o'clock tonight, honestly. And then listening to the news right before coming here, I got my theme. It's ignorance. Uh, yes, I got it from listening to the news. Um, <clears throat> skill, first of all, let, let's just uh, approach this word of ignorance in a very simple way. In the Buddhist teaching, uh, the, th- the sources of suffering are called the three poisons. That sometimes, uh, these are the kalesas in, in the Pali language. And they're, they're usually translated as greed, hatred, and delusion, or greed, hatred, and ignorance, or a wanting, the wanting mind—that mind which is never satisfied, constantly wanting, wanting what—it's insatiable. You want to call it—I don't like the word greed because it's a bit righteous; it's very judgmental. And I mean it as a descriptive term. Just sometimes the mind is in that uh, a place an activity that it's that is dominating it, that's uh, directing it, where it wants. It wants something. Now what we want varies. What you might want today or I might want could vary from moment to moment. That's one poison. The second poison is not wanting. That could that could is sometimes called aversion or aggression. It could wind up being killing, murder, it could be war. And that's To destroy what we don't like, the first one is to want what we do like, and then to get rid of, to avoid, to hide from, to negate in some way, to get away from what we don't like. But the root of it all, the soil out of which both wanting and not wanting grows, is ignorance. So uh, finally, if you understand ignorance, the others are derivative from it that's, that's it's sometimes called the mother of suffering, source, the source. Igno- the suffering is born out of ignorance. Okay, so now what? What is the, the ignorance that the Buddha is talking about? Let's start very simply as if we know nothing. Uh, if you say a person's ignorant, well, let's start, let's put it a different way. Um, knowledge, because in the Pali and I believe the Sanskrit as well, uh, avijja is ignorance, and vijja is knowledge. But a secondary meaning of knowledge, or an additional, it's not subordinate to it, is skill, skillful. So, uh, ignorance is the is uh, is not knowing, and uh, being unskillful, and vijja, which is knowledge. Uh, ignorance is being unskillful, and uh, vidya, which is knowledge, it's, uh, it's being skillful. That's another meaning of it. Okay, but when, um, and that's how the Buddha is using it, and we'll go into that in a few moments. But let's say in ordinary language, if we say someone's ignorant, it might mean that they're illiterate. They literally cannot read or write. And we might say that person's ignorant. Or if a person is just very badly informed. They just don't know anything. They're ignorant. Someone's knowledgeable. They've accumulated a lot of information. They know a lot. Read a lot of books. Studied a lot. Or a particular subject. Have gone into it very, very deeply. It needn't come from books. That person is knowledgeable about fixing automobiles. That person's knowledgeable about whatever you may be thinking of this moment. Um, in Dharma terms ignorance is a lack of self-understanding so that you can be illiterate but if you understand yourself in Dharma terms you're not ignorant um, this is an important point I hope I can make it skillfully we will probably use that word to death tonight um, I had two one teacher and one person I met who was not a teacher except in a In an important sense, both were illiterate. One was a Korean uh, Zen master who literally would sign an X. He could not. I've mentioned him before, Byok Joseonim. And he thought the world was flat, could not be convinced otherwise, uh, and was radiant. And there were three of us. We were on this mountain, this monastery, for a year. And uh, we would have all these when there were breaks from sitting and practicing, formal practice. And we could not convince him that the world was round. And we went over and over and over with it. And then finally, uh, we used high school, junior high school science. We couldn't get anywhere. Uh, So finally he said, OK, you're probably right. I'm just an ignorant mountain monk. What do I know? I'm illiterate. I don't know anything. You're all college graduates and professors and this and that. Uh, Probably you're right. Maybe the world is round and what I know is just not true. Has that made you happier? <laughs> and why did we come thousands of miles, eat food that didn't agree with us at first, uh, and climate? Not know the language at all. Everything was through a translator. This is a long time ago. Korea is a little different now, uh, because it was something that we felt was lacking in us, and we came all this way and went through all this. Uh, three-month retreat with no sleep for a week and all kinds of things. Uh, and he didn't know anything, but he was radiant. And we came to learn from him. He didn't care what we knew. So, hmm, that's interesting. Now, I make this point because often we equate knowledge and wisdom. Uh, recently seeing some films on Nazi Germany. Uh, one of the most interesting aspects of Nazi Germany is that Um, perhaps certainly one of the best educated and most literate societies in Europe you could say the world at the time if not one of maybe the with a rich culture in all the arts and sciences and so forth Um, you had brilliant people like Heidegger and scientists extraordinarily brilliant who were Nazis and so Uh, and listened to somebody who everyone knows, including the Germans more than anyone else, that he was demented, passionate and demented, and led the planet into a destructive phase which caused millions of lives. And for me, I spent two years in Germany, in the Army of Occupation right after World War II. And uh, it was astonishing because I met so many intelligent, educated, kind people, and yet it seems like when people get desperate... And we have to be careful, because I see that in our, the modern world now, just limited to our culture. Desperate about this, desperate about that. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to stuff that is stupid. Or we, somehow we check our intelligence just to take shelter in some, anything so that we can feel a little bit. It's illusory security. And what we saw, which we know now in hindsight, is that this passionate, deranged in some ways, brilliant politician, uh, was able to convince people who were incredibly knowledgeable, brilliant, to do things that brought nothing but destruction. Unskillful with an exclamation, if you, certainly from the Buddhist point of view. Remember, skillful uh, is mind states, speech, and actions that are beneficial for you and for the people in your life. Unskillful. Our mind states and and uh, verbal and physical actions that produce suffering. Uh, So it's safe to what it got me to. It took me years really to figure out because at the time I was quite enamored with learning. I was busily accumulating a lot of it. Now I'm not advocating. Let's all just uh, get some scientific medical treatment and become illiterate. There's no particular virtue in being illiterate. Nor Vice in being well-educated, that's not the issue. It's just that wisdom, which can be, to begin with, based on learning things. Like, this is just talk. These, let's say my words are, let's give me the benefit of the doubt, extraordinarily wise. <laughs> They're just words. That's what they are. And maybe some of them will be, feel nice to you, and maybe you'll agree, and you'll leave here maybe uh, liking it and feeling better. I'm glad I came there. Uh, they're words. Okay. Uh, what I start to see is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Um, is, that is, knowledge is a fo- is, it comes out of a certain form of intelligence. In other words, we've not defined intelligence intelligently, is what I'm trying to say. And that is, we've limited intelligence to rational, logical, deductive, accumulative, capacity that the mind has, which is a wonderful human capacity. It's not to to go back to the Stone Age. Oh, I can't say that now. It's politically incorrect, isn't it? There's always a caveman, you know, now in commercials, who his feelings are hurt. Oh, that's so easy, a caveman could do it. Uh, I can almost, you almost can't open your mouth anymore because someone's offended. But anyway, I apologize to Stone Age people if there are any around. <laughs> I've not, I don't even know what they're... You know, I know a little bit about them, not much.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's another form of intelligence which is not necessarily in, co- in conflict with logical, deductive, conceptual intelligence, but that is non-conceptual or pre-conceptual. And that you could call wisdom. And that's why meditation is going there, Med- this form of meditation, which is all I'm speaking about. The word meditation now, it just covers a, such a wide range of from lying on a beach and imagine that the sun is shining and you have, don't have a care in the day in the ocean. it's called meditation. And there are other things that are called meditation. So I don't know what the word means anymore. I can only tell you how I'm using it, how we use it here and, uh, in certain circles. Um, It's very clear to me that knowledge in and of itself is not a guarantee of anything. In fact, we know that you can have tremendous knowledge and be miserable. The promise, probably even before the 20th century, that somehow science and technology was going to take care of us and all problems would be solved as science grows and develops. And it's been brilliant the accomplishments of science, but not inwardly. Am I being too hard on us? There hasn't been an inward flowering that accompanies the outer brilliance and genius. Quite the contrary. The gap has become so extraordinary that it's dangerous because, the brilliance in science and technology has unleashed tremendous energy. Some of it can be used destructively, and is used destructively. So wisdom. By the way, it's not just us. If you read thousands of years ago, we humans have always been this way. It seems it's just we only had bow and arrows and <coughs> little knives. We could do you know there was a limit to how much we could do with each other. The stakes are higher now. In addition to what we do can do to the planet. Okay, so. uh, We need to enlarge our sense of what intelligence is, not to reject uh, conceptual intelligence, which is beautiful, but to bring some balance into it. It is totally imbalanced. And if we master machines and in the process uh, are miserable inside, if it's a desert inside and everything else is flowering outside, um, we know what that's like. That's why people in perhaps the most opulent society like this one, or at least it used to be, uh, that's why we're here, isn't it? Why else would you come here? There are better, you know, more fun things to do, as they say in California. <laughs> now we say it too. It always starts in California. That's, everything is fun there. Um, okay, so this wisdom I'm talking about. Uh, is, has everything to do with ignorance. So what does the Buddha mean by ignorance? He doesn't mean that you, uh, it apparently does not. You can be literate. You can be highly educated. Uh, but you can still be ignorant. You can be illiterate and, 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 not, be Ill, and not be ignorant. Because the ignorance is... And here, the, if you read Buddhist texts, here are the ways in which uh, avidja is sometimes translated. One of the main ways, perhaps the main way, is ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. If you knew, you probably won't know what I'm talking about. And I can't do it justice. All Buddhist schools, all of them, that's at le- there is at least one thing that they agree on. And that is the Four Noble Truths, the Tibetan traditions, the Zen traditions, uh, the, uh, the Theravadan <coughs> traditions, and other schools that are not as well known here. Uh, the Buddhist teaching is centered on the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering in the world. In other words, if you have a form, if you are a form, a body, there's got to be suffering. It comes, it comes with the turf. Okay, There's a cause to it. Whereas if you're suffering, this is not physical pain we're talking about now. It would apply there. That's the realm of medicine, perhaps. One of the things medicine can do. Uh, What is being gotten at the Buddha is mainly locating human misery in the psyche. The fact that we don't understand the mind. Granted, if you have a body, of course it must age. Oh, now, I just saw a program last night, did you ever see Barbara Walters? We're going to live to be 500 years old? Uh, I don't want to be dukkha ridden for 500 years. (laughs) So fine, maybe it's true. I mean, it's too late for me, but maybe some of you young whippersnappers, you may be around for 500 years or 150 years, but if you don't take care of what's going on inside, what's so great about that? What's so great about longevity? If the quality of life is horrible, it's just a jail sentence. Anyway, that's just one very, not such a nice view. But everyone was very excited about it, and I'm not against, uh, well... I get a lot of mail, you know how you get all this junk mail for whatever reason, I get a lot of junk mail that has to do with the anti-aging society that want me to join. I'm not anti-aging. You know, that's sort of like what am I at war against aging? What would that? Who will I win? Why would I want to contribute money to that? So I don't join that society. GBH is different. I give my couple of bucks to them, and you know they give me some d- DVD or something like that. They bribe me, essentially. Um, okay, so one meaning of ignorance is ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, that there's a cause to it, and that there is an end to this suffering, psychological suffering. And it comes about through the path, the famous Eightfold Path. If you really new, you will hear about it if you go to places like this. Uh, what it's saying is uh, the first noble truth, if you only read that, it sounds awfully pessimistic. Oh, these Buddhists, they just think everything is suffering. That's not what's being said. What is being said is there is suffering. Uh, if there is suffering, do you know it? Okay. Now, one of the meanings of ignorance is on an informational level. This is from the Buddha's point of view now, please. You won't find it in the Encyclopedia Britannica. What the Buddha, one, one meaning of ignorance would be, you don't know about the Four Noble Truths. You never heard of it. Because what's in the Four Noble Truths is cause and effect. And that's why a lot of scientifically or educated people are drawn to it. It's saying that uh, there's, there's a lawfulness to it. So that if they're suffering, there's a cause. That means it's not hopeless. If everything was totally fatalistic and fixed, then what's the point in doing anything? Uh, I, don't, I grew up with uh, old Orthodox Jews. My grandfather and we'd have a discussion, and I thought some things that I, I was being told by the rabbi were silly, like how did the rabbi, how did Moses uh, get the Red Sea to open up? And uh, my grandfather couldn't answer it, and he would just say, "It's written in the book." That would be the end of it. Okay, that somehow isn't good enough. Now. Cause and effect is implying that if we can understand, first you have to know that you have, let's say, it's a medical model. It's actually, uh, uh, the Ayurveda was a medical model. It means there's a disease, and the disease has a cause. And if you can understand what the cause is, and have a medicine for it, then you can heal it. Okay. So what the Buddha is saying is, we have a, a spiritual illness, ailment. So ignorance on one level is you don't even have the information. You don't even know about the teaching. Again, this is from a Buddhist point of view. Uh, I'm not trying to turn anyone into a Buddhist, whatever that would be for you. But that's what it's meant. A secondary meaning of it is um, that you start to know uh, uh, ignorance would be you don't even know what it's like to suffer. You don't understand. You understand the information, but you haven't had any experience where you're really seeing that. Oh, this ignorance, this suffering is caused by the fact that I'm uh, doing X, and that's what, every time you do X, you get Y. You stick your hand in your fire, you get burned. Easy. We all learn that one. Pull right back. But apparently, we're doing that. It's a simple model, but it's very, very difficult to unlearn in the more subtle ways that. And it goes against common sense. We're swimming against the tide. A lot of things that we're told will make us happy do make us happy in a rather limited way. Status, money, sex, power, fame, nice house. These things in and of themselves are fine. The problem is we want them to deliver so much more than they can. And we get obsessed and attached. And then uh, life creates the suffering because everything keeps changing. And what worked for a while... Is taken away from us. We're separated from it. Or we change, and what we work for a while doesn't work anymore. Whether it's a person, a food, a place to live, an ideology. So this is the wanting mind. This is greed. Okay. Now, if you haven't, let's say you've read all the books in our library, which would tell you everything I'm saying. There's nothing new in what I'm saying. Then the next step is: uh, Are you beginning to get some experience of what the words are saying? That's another meaning. So ignorance would mean you don't even have the teaching or if you have the teaching but you don't, you don't bother or know what the experience of it is. But here's the meaning I'd like to emphasize tonight and that's of course consistent with what I've been trying to develop for these uh, however long this has been going on is another meaning of ignorance is that you don't know the skills that are needed to take care of yourself so that you don't suffer. You can read and understand conceptually the Four Noble Truths and give brilliant talks to a 1,000 people. You can then even maybe experience it a bit and understand, ah, oh, it's true what the Buddha says. But if you don't know the skills that enable you to do something about it, how to work with it, how to care for yourself, then that is another form of ignorance. And that's the part that I think is central. That's what a practice is. A lot of what practice is, is learning new skills, uh, and we could, you know, there are uh, endless examples. Maybe we can cover a few. Uh, so a lot of the teaching are teachings in how to develop, first of all, uh, in the Eightfold Path, right view for, and right under, and right thinking are the first two. Now, to begin with, right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths, but that's just conceptually. And then you come full circle. To really know the Four Noble Truths is you have to apply that knowledge in your life and begin to see and, you, and be given uh, ways of, of uh, working skillfully with suffering, if and when you have it, so that more and more you see, oh, when I do this, I get that. And the, the learning goes on. And for me, actually, I left this out. For me, the quiet passion is mainly the passion to learn. And learning here, some of you perhaps learn, love to learn something, some subject, or something in life. What I'm getting at here wouldn't it be nice if wisdom was something that we loved to do? Not take it as cod liver oil, you know, as medicine, uh, but actually enjoy the process of living out our life and learning. How to live in the process of living, because you don't finally, in my, I haven't seen it, finally establish. Even the Buddha had to, right to the end, would have very difficult people to work with. He had a brother-in-law or son, some-in-law, cousin, Devadatta wanted to kill him. He wanted to take over and be, you know, get rid of the Buddha so I can run the show, and all kinds of difficult people. Uh, So you have to pay attention. There are lessons to be learned. So the the skills uh, require a, a steady mind, a clear mind. A lot of what we're learning, certainly to begin with, those of you who have done some meditation, a simple practice like breath awareness. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's just saying, look, you're already breathing. If you're alive, you have the capacity to be awake to some degree. And you have a body, sit there. And just it doesn't take a huge amount of effort. Just become aware of the... Sensations that come about as the lungs fill up and empty. Oh, okay. Uh, what value does that have? What kind of skill is that? It turns out that it's helping the mind to be fit, steady, calm, clear. So it's a better... It's a, it, let's say we have electronic microscopes and we have telescopes. Uh, we're developing a mind that can see very deeply, accurately, and precisely into ourselves. To begin with, we don't have that ability to see clearly, because when we look at ourselves, we're looking through the old mind yesterday, which got us into this mess. Sorry, nothing personal. If you're not in a mess, consider yourself fortunate. Tomorrow you will be, but all right. Uh, because we, when we, see, we think we're looking at the world uh, through our eyes, let's say, just as externally, but really, it's the mind that's looking at the world, full of all kinds of likes and dislikes and prejudices and conditionings and so forth. Well, we face the question, is it possible for a human mind to cleanse itself of that, to purge itself of that, so that it can have moments where it's just seeing? And of course, the seeing is not out there. It's in here. That's and that, many of us already, we, we're good at seeing. Nature, photography, all kinds but it's in here that we we really need some help. And so as you practice being with the breath, in, out, in, out, those of you who've done it a bit, you know that the mind learns how to do it. It can learn how to do it if you do it. And the mind starts to become more calm, a bit more clear. There's a little bit of peace and joy comes up. It feels good. You start learning that how much energy has been squandered running after every production of the mind instead of the breath. At first, well, what, what am I... I'm not interested in this breath. I'd much rather fantasize about what might happen 5 years from now uh with that new person who moved in upstairs, you know. <laughs> Maybe we'll get married and then we'll do, you know. Uh And you start to see the the mind as you get to know the mind and that's why the Buddha is constantly bringing back bringing us back to ourselves. The Buddha says all he is is a finger pointing to the moon. The teachings are fingers. They're just I'm just a finger, a talking finger.
1: Oh.
0: Sometimes stuff comes out of me that I never heard before. It's rare, but you know now and then. Uh, so the clear seeing, the accurate seeing, uh, is w- we're learning that through the breath. First of all, we see how much energy is squandered, tremendous amount of energy squandered. We, we have certain c- things that we've been repeating in our mind for years. Old grievances, you know, about my mommy, my daddy. Well, well how long ago was that? Oh, 70 years ago. Uh, get over it. But you, you don't just bury it. So energy goes into that, preoccupations about some imaginary future that's horrible or wonderful, the past that is imperfectly being recreated through memory. In the meantime, there's a simple in breath, in, out. It's a fact. The other things are non-facts. They're stuff the mind fabricates, okay. which we believe in. We've been trained. We, we believe our thoughts. We believe in all this stuff. okay. As we start to see the limited value of that, and then as you start more and more being able to maintain continuity just with a simple breath, in, out, in, out, in, out, you realize what I thought was a trivial skill. Who cares about the breath? It's nice that it's going, so I'm alive, but I'm much more interested in what the they're more colorful, the productions of the mind, we start realizing that the utter simplicity of the breath is really not a waste of time. And, and it's not an idea. It's a, you can feel it. You feel the difference. Then the question is, like the nervous system is improved. Scientifically, I'm sure if it hasn't been done, it will be. They're studying all this stuff now. But you can feel it. Uh, there's a certain rejuvenation that comes from breath awareness, especially as you learn to rest in it. It's a break from all the uh, preoccupations the mind has, all the apprehension, all the wondering and speculating and conflict and so forth. Finally, oh just a, an in-breath, an out-breath, an in-breath, an out-breath. But for our purposes this evening, the mind is little by little being transformed so that it is more able to see clearly and accurately. And then it can look at suffering. Looking at your own suffering is not easy. Like fear, like loneliness, like anger. Well, you tell me, grief. All the different ways in which we, uh, human torment, human anguish. We all have it. No one's been singled out. Okay, so assuming you have interest in getting free, the Buddha is saying that ignorance is being ignorant of the fact that you can do some. Oh, one, one of the meanings of ignorance in the Buddhist teaching is we're ignorant. I think this is a very beautiful and important one. We're ignorant of our full potential as human beings. We're ignorant of our full potential. This is more than psychological fulfillment. Way beyond that. It can include that. What is being said is that we're not aware of how big a person is, how vast consciousness is. And what happens as more and more we can uh, participate in it and to learn to allow it to affect us. Silence, space. It's not dead. We call it emptiness, shunyata. That's not a good word in English. Empty means nothing going on. And sometimes when the mind feels very quiet, we immediately run back I have to fill up that silence with some activity. What I'll do tomorrow, and then maybe he said, she said, I've got to tell my boss that I'm not going to, you know, like, at least I'm at home here. Well, wh- why'd you leave the silence? Nothing was going on. Okay, that nothing turns out to be a I mean, tremendous gift that we humans have. But how can you find out if that's true and not just uh, some deluded person speaking on Wednesday night? You have to get there, have access. It's there, but we have to learn how to not b- believe in this little enclosure called me as being the whole thing. We spend our life trying to improve the enclosure, fix it inside. Fix what's broken. Become a kinder in this all in this enclosure that the mind is put together. Now, if you're new to this, you might think that what is he talking about? It's for you to find out. This is not a, be- a new belief. It's a hypothesis. What's being said is that the mind creates a sense of who it is, notions, ideas, pictures based on memory, experience, and so forth. These and then believes in it. These are all productions, fabrications of our mind, some of which we like, some of which we don't like. It comes from our history. And uh, it's stitched together, all this stuff. from the. It's stitched together, and virtually everything that happens during the day is used to enhance this self of me. So it is very convincing that it's something solid and unmovable. This is to whom everything is happening, rather than this is part of a, a changing process. Okay. So, the teachings are saying that. Now, if you get fixated on being X, Y, or Z, what it's saying is, of course, you're going to suffer. Any fixation in a world that's constantly changing, uh, it's a head on collision. You're colliding with a, with a law that's as real as, as uh, a scientific, any other physical science law. Everything's changing. Have you noticed? Things don't stay the same. We haven't taken full advantage of that. A lot of our suffering is because we don't know that. So that's a kind of ignorance. We maybe know it outside. It's also functioning inside. So we're equipping the mind with is simple breathing and the encouragement to be mindful throughout the day, doing walking, whatever you're doing. Every time you do that, the mind is, in a sense, educating itself, training itself to be a little steadier, a little clearer. As you start seeing how the seeing is not clear, it's colored with your likes and dislikes and blah. It's yesterday's eyes seeing, thinking it's seeing it what's true. It's so obvious in a way. Uh, If you, all of these tribal rivalries, and I consider nationalism the same. It's all tribal. If you see, if uh, an Israeli sees a Palestinian, it's very hard for the. For that to be accurate, but the same the Palestinian sees the Israeli. Do you think that it would take an unusual one of, of each one of those to see how much is between them and the other? And to finally be able to see that finally we're just a bunch of human beings. And this is not some romantic, ideological, someday we'll, we're all one and we'll ride off into the sunset. Uh, you can see it. You can see that we're relating to each other based on what the mind tells us is happening rather than clear seeing. Now, what the Buddha is saying is, that's ignorance. And what the corrective is, accurate, clear seeing. Because when you see clearly and accurately, you can see how, how your living is unskillful. Not as a theory. Not as a theory. You see that how you, when you do this, you get that. If you hold on to something, and it, it's, things are changing, And you keep doing that again and again and again and don't understand why you're miserable. And then somebody says, you know, this is the way life is. It's nothing personal. Everything is arising, passing away. You can enjoy it while it's here, but it must change. Look, I'm 75, and I can hardly bear being around people my generation who I went through school, college with, graduate school with. All they're talking about is the good old days. They weren't that good. We were looking forward to getting out of those good old days, you know, to graduate, and then there's new good old days and new and new fantasies about what the next, what's coming for us. Okay, um, that means what I see is, and to some degree, I don't, I don't mean I've mastered it. What I see is that we don't know how to age. For example, just take a, thats a big one. The body must age, despite Barbara Walters. <laughs> Well look, it could take longer, I don't doubt that, but there's one direction that we're all headed. Okay, you want to be put frozen, it's up to you. And what, come out and you don't know who anyone is and uh, they're talking about things that make no sense to you. And, but I, I'm 500 years old. Oh, you are? Well, what, we have nothing in common. Why don't you hang out with the other 500-year-olds? <laughs> Leave us 200-year-olds alone. But let's just, let's assume, forgetting about the miracles of science that await us, if the inner world has not changed, then what would the extra years amount to? What is the improvement if it doesn't, isn't accompanied by wisdom? If there's no inner flowering accompanying the prolongation of physical life, what actually are we accomplishing? That you can constantly g- feel good about, well, I'm uh, 98 years old and still I wear Bermuda shorts and I play golf. <laughs> well good for you. Uh, are you happy? Miserable. But I am 90 years old and I can wear Bermuda still. <laughs> this is Florida. My parents retired there and that's what I saw. Actually it wasn't even that good. Because, but at that age, all you want to do is go from one air conditioned room to another. <laughs> You don't want any golf courses. Um, so the clear seeing is vital to the po- Insight means seeing into. And so much of what we're doing is we're learning how to see. Mindfulness. To remember to pay attention to what's happening right now. And that's the skill, with the, a central skill. And there has to be an interest in learning from what you see and hear. And so ignorance here is not only here's ignorance can be ignorance of your full potential. That is, we humans have tremendous potential that we don't know about. We're trying to fix ourselves within this little enclosure known as me, which keeps breaking down. We improve it, and then we go over here and fix that. And then there's a hole over there, and we patch that up, and the roof caves in. and We go over there, and then, uh, and then the body, of course, has one direction. Uh, so ignorance could be, then, you don't even know there's a teaching that exists. And I'm not saying Buddhism has a monopoly on it. I don't know other religions as well. I don't know them hardly at all. I just know this a little bit. Okay. Uh, so what is being said is, here's some teachings. These are just words, but they're pointing that it isn't hopeless. But now what you have to do, the words are saying, is when you're suffering, pay attention and feel what that's like. And that's uh, the first noble truth. And suffering is not, the, is not ennobling. There's nothing ennobling about suffering. If it were, the whole planet would be noble. Just be a bunch of noble people walking around instead of uh, discouraged, uh, demoralized, uh, broken, beaten down, and so forth. Uh, the, what's ennobling is when we learn from our suffering. And that takes us deeper beyond the suffering. Now in order to do that, you have to know your suffering in the first place. Now I know the men of my generation, we never suffered, we weren't allowed to. And I know when I spent a fair amount of time in England, stiff upper lip, no one was suffering because everything is fine. Well even here, how are you doing? Fine. Everyone is fine. Great. What it is terrific. So how come the therapist's office and places like this are packed if we're so fine? Because we're not fine. Okay. And we have all these unskillful ways of dealing with that not being fine. Okay. So step. this teaching is saying, look, you have to start there. The doorway to liberation is through your own suffering. If you want to be free of that suffering and more and more allow your full potential out, then you have to know your suffering when it's happening. Well, how do you do that? That's the skill. That's ignorance of the skill that there are skills that exist tools, techniques, methods, forms, that have been used for thousands of years, long before the Buddha. You can read in the Vedas and the Upanishads. Yogis have been investigating. One of the main meanings of yoga is skillful action. It's not just putting your ankle around your head and then twisting it into your right ear. (laughs) That gets you a job in the circus. But it's not particularly wise. I'm not down on yoga. I just have to make it clear because I don't. You sue me. Some yoga teacher here will assume me that you're losing business because I put down yoga. <laughs> uh, the real uh, one of the root meanings of yoga is skillful action. Okay, on all levels, including the body, of course. Okay, how to use the body properly? How, how do you do that? You have to learn. You have to pay attention. You have to learn what bodies need to eat, etc., sleep, rest, food, water. Okay. Um, the techniques and methods are tools and an interest in learning is an interest in learning seeing that, wow, look at that. When I do this, I get a right hook to the jaw. So why do I keep doing it uh, over and over and over and over again? So then we investigate and we see the reason I don't change that behavior is I haven't made that connection. I haven't either have not paid attention or I'm afraid to pay attention. Maybe if I pay attention, I'll realize I have to quit my job. I have to leave my partner. I can't do that. I'm too, it's too frightening. So there's a lot of things we don't want to learn about because of fear. That's why if you embark on the journey of self-knowing, at least two qualities I think are essential. I'm sure there are more. One is humility because we learn from our mistakes, or at least we have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes. When you suffer in a psychological suffering, there is the opportunity that you might have to learn from it. Whether we do that or not is up to us. It's not automatic, necessarily. Okay, So there has to be an interest. Do you want to be free? So there's humility and the other's courage. Uh, They're not unrelated, because you have to look at things that, at first, you don't really want to see, at a certain point. We have a saying in Dharma circles, self-knowledge is usually bad news. Okay? Uh, but that changes as you go on. It's not bad news, it's just true. It's just news. And you stop taking things so personally, uh, everything having to do with how this me in this little enclosure is doing. Am I OK? Am I a good meditator? Am I a good yogi? Am I calm enough? Do the other people seem more calm than I am? Larry seems very, very calm. Not always, though. I wonder about him as a teacher. <laughs> So we can, we can make anything into suffering. And there has to be an interest in learning. And we learn by paying attention both internally and externally to our feelings, to what's going on in the mind and the heart, to what's going on outside, how it affects us, the reactions that we have to the world out so-called outside external to us. And so ignorance is corrected by being given, first of all, a map. An imperfect map, because teachings, life is much messier and more powerful than any verbal teachings. Even the Buddha acknowledged that. No teach, every set of teachings is incomplete. It can't fully grasp how rich life is, but it can help you. It's like a map of a prison, which isn't exactly totally accurate, but you can use it to get free. It's good enough. Okay. But to get free, you've got to start knowing where to dig. And when to dig when the guards aren't looking or you know whatever it is okay so uh, the path has everything to do with interest in becoming a free human being let's say we're free externally internally are we free I remember we had a retreat with a Burmese teacher uh, Upandita Sayadaw and, and the retreat was a three month retreat uh, and it, it, the first week or two was during the fourth of July and he uh, it was all translated in Burmese. He said, well, today is the 4th of July. In your country, this is a day where you're celebrating liberation, independence, freedom. He says, and he looked at us, are you free? <laughs> you know, Of course, he meant inner freedom. Um, so this skill is a lot of what we're doing. We're learning how to have a clear mind. And the learning goes on as we live. It's ongoing. It's no different than any other skill. You keep refining it. I feel that the art of living, at least for me, I, to my last breath, I don't feel, I, I, nowhere close to me. How can you master it? There are always new challenges. Some people maintain they have mastered it. Good, I hope they have. But as far as I can tell, there's still that last test the, the big exam up in the sky called death. And you can say, well, I've done all these death awareness meditations. I've taken Larry's class on death meditation 17 times. Uh, No problem. Maybe. (laughs)
1: Let's
0: see what happens on graduation day. (laughs) I asked one of my teachers in Japan. I said, how does a Zen master die? And he said, how do I know? Wait till I die. Okay. So you see where it's a different meaning of ignorance. One is of information, another is of the experience. And then finally, uh, the skills that we can learn so that we can take care of ourselves. We have to free ourselves. No one can do it for us. We can come together and give each other encouragement and strength. We can listen to each other. We can support one another. But we can't do it for another person. Okay. Um, whoop! I don't know, did I go over or under or over? I didn't think I'd have too much to say on ignorance tonight. Uh, if you need to go home now, please do so. If some of you can stay only for a few minutes and have a question or so, it's not rude. If you have to get up in the middle of the Q&A and leave, it's fine with me. But while some of you who are going to leave right now are leaving, I'd like to get the QA going. So, anything that's on anyone's mind, could we talk it over together, please? Okay, maybe we'll wait a minute till it quiets down a little. For those you who are leaving, could, could you do it quietly so we can hear those if there are any questions? Please. I just have a, a little comment.
1: You mentioned something about about uh, learning how to age. Yes. I'm now 66. Mm-hmm. I know that our center has.
0: An evening, a special evening for those of us that are... 30, you want an old, old fogies and under. Okay.
1: And I, I mean this in all seriousness.
0: You're not the first one to mention okay, it. But when I teach uh, learning how to...
1: Would you be the first one to do something about it
0: then? I've been doing it for 15 years. Okay. It's called Learning How to Live, Learning How to Die. We talk about aging, sickness, and death. But you want something where we just, us old more folks. Specific on the, yeah, no uh, young people allowed in, right? Nah, yeah, I understand. Well, what do they know? They still think that they, well, they have more time ahead than behind. father would say
1: that? You say, I he said that, that when he was older, he'd say, you know, I have
0: more time behind than I have in front. But it's true. Well, it is. Pro- not always, but could be. That's, please, sure. So now everything's taken care of. I gotta go home and hang up. Okay, please. Your talk, you referred to you made a reference to Socrates. I did. And uh, knowing yourself. Yes, yeah. is I wonder if you might comment on the, any differences that you perceive between the way that Socrates went about knowing himself and the way that uh, one knows oneself. The Buddha, let's say. Uh, I'm not qualified to answer it except in a, in a rather uh, superficial speculation. Um, and I've ch- I have a good friend who has a PhD in Socratic philosophy, teaches here. He's a student who comes here. And what we've talked. Or other ways in general, no, as con- other ways of knowing oneself, as contrasted with the Buddhist way. As far as. I, I don't. I only know this one. But uh, the the difference that I've seen with Socrates. Uh, why would you want to know a whole bunch of other ways than this one? <laughs> What's in it for you? See, look at it. Find out why, where that question's coming from. Is it just speculative, curiosity? You see, is it going to help you, move you ahead, move you into this? I don't know. But look, let's finish with Socrates. Uh, based on what I've read and spoken to scholars, there may be, they're talking probably about the same mind. But there's not as much help offered by Socrates. Uh, it se- for example, I'm sure the Buddha is not the only wise person who ever lived. He may be one of the great teachers who ever lived because he offered, it's a very large department store, and there are methods and techniques and forms for virtually anything you want to talk about. In Socrates, I didn't see that, and that's why the questions were burning inside of me, but I don't think I did a whole lot about it. And when I got to this, retreats and meditation and instructions, this I saw that this could really come alive. It did. It came alive, and so I kind of went back, so, but I don't know. You know, maybe there were methods that I don't know about, but uh, I would say one strength of the Buddha's teaching is that he left for us a legacy of actual things to do to make this a reality rather than just reflect on or talk about. That's the best I can do, sorry. Yeah. Please.
1: Oh, in this day and age, as a normal yeah. human being, what levels... You're of a normal human being? Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. What levels of release from suffering are possible? Yeah.
0: What do you mean? Um, Why don't you start what, with your suffering? That's a spe- uh, go ahead.
1: Just like, well, is enlightenment a reasonable um, goal, or if not, then like what? I mean, like I know that um, you know, for instance, yes. some of the other teachers here say that there's a lot to be gained from practice um, progressively, but I'm just wondering, like, to what degree? Like, is that is it really that worth it?
0: <laughs> I, okay, here's what one of my teachers. I asked a question like that once uh, to, uh, in Japan, uh, and his answer was, no, all this sitting and retreats, its comp- this is totally worthless. He said, but if you don't do this worthless thing with, a, with the most sincere effort you can, your life will be worthless. You figure that one out. Okay. <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to be more concrete than that. Okay, well, that's yeah, but I, don't, I want to. Okay. Um, there are different models of how to answer your question, but they're just ideas. I think what would be more interesting is what's in back of your question. But I'm going to tell you, I'm speaking in general now. One model is, you could call it the stepladder model of practice. That is, there's enlightenment, whatever that might mean, way at the end of the rainbow. And if I do sit enough and walk a lot, you know, and walk all, going like that, you know, only eat vegetables and do all this kind of thing. Then someday, and we and don't, don't, uh, don't have too much sex. Don't eat too much. Don't do. And then someday, poo, I'll be, everything will be perfect. Uh, there'll be just no suffering, etc. That's one. It's a model. Okay. There's another model. Clearly, I'm. I do not favor that model. But it's easier for people to grasp that one because that's how. We, that's like a junior high school, high school, B.A master's degree, PhD, assist... You know, in other words, we like this, This uh, you do this and then you get this far and then you move a little further and then you move a little further. So, And then at the end of it, you get a degree or you get a reward or something. So we can handle that. Cause and effect, cause and effect, and so forth. There's another model, which is the practice and realization. I don't like the word enlightenment. I prefer the term awakening. Okay. What Buddha literally means is because enlightenment has... Connotations from uh, European Enlightenment, and also people don't know what awakening is more. It's closer, I feel, in texture to what you can experience. A Buddha is a is. It's a general term. It's not like a last name, like Rosenberg. A Buddha, a Buddha is it's a generic term for somebody who's fully awake. Okay. Now, uh, this other model, which I favor, is practice and awakening are the same thing. It's not means to end. Because in taking care of this moment, meaning you're fully attentive to this moment, not only are you taking care of suffering, but in this moment you're developing something that is to some degree similar to what the Buddha has. It's not full awakening, but you're practicing being awake for 10 seconds, for two seconds. It doesn't have the depth, the continuity, the subtlety, the refinement of, let's say, a Buddha. But let's say you're learning violin. You're, you know, it's not Yehudi Menuhin, but you're still s- scratching out some tunes. But the point is, the first one is premised on a future, a model in the mind of time. That is, if you give me enough time, I'll evolve and then I'll become perfect. Okay. The second one is, uh, all we have is now, and that's all we're ever going to have. So this, to me, it's a more mature model, personally. As you take care of this moment, which is all we have, for sure, do you follow me so far? Yeah. Okay. So, when you now I, have you been practicing for a while or you're fairly new? Um, new, well, kind of like
1: two years, but not really consistently.
0: Okay. So, it's, I would say relatively new. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you were, awa- let, let's say, uh, let, let's talk about liberation, because often that's another way in which this is talked about. Awakening, liberation, enlightenment, they're often used as synonyms. When we think of liberation, someday, down the pike, I'll be a liberated person. And so we do all these things so, in order to get liberated. But And there are breakthroughs. Things happen as you practice sometimes where huge chunks of suffering fall away, never to be seen again. But uh, it comes when it comes. You can't, it's not something that's predictable. Uh, but in this other model, uh, What would be the what would be enslavement, the opposite of liberation and ignorance, which would be is that what we typically do is if things are nice, we grab onto them and want them to last, and we want more of it. That typically causes suffering. Okay, when things are not what we want, we get into a struggle with them, we avoid them, we want to annihilate them or get away or change, do anything to escape from it. Okay. When it's neither, we get bored, and, and go, we just fill it up with fantasy. When it's neither, we want or we don't want. Okay. The Buddha's teaching, Dharma, is neither of those. It's not grabbing onto what we like, and it's not pushing away what we don't like. It's being aware of what's happening. So if there's something joyful that's happening to you, experience it. It's not saying, don't be happy. And then when it's gone, it is gone. Now, we have to. It's a skill to learn how to, to fully enjoy what's there while it's there. And wisdom is understanding that, of course, it's going to go. And it's all right. And then we're with what's next. And if next is suffering, rather than this all the time, uh, we, it's, in other words, it's a establishing a very different relationship with what's happening. In the terms that I'm using, it might be five seconds of liberation or freedom. That's all. But these are, this is what makes up the texture of our day. So, uh, I prefer that model. Does that help at all? Yeah,
1: it does. Um, I still sort of see that in the context of time. I, it's my understanding is that however you put it in words, you know, it's still going to draw upon that fundamental
0: misconception, right? Well, which time? See, there's clock time and there's psychological time. Clock time is a practical, it's just a convention. We need it. Okay. Psychological time, the mind makes up. Um, there's no future, it doesn't exist. When we get there, it'll be the present. Yeah. There's no past. That is over with, never to return. Okay. See, that's psychological time. We're living in virtual time, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The practice is coming to live in real time. Okay. Does that make sense? No, but in a way, you have a point, because there's a byproduct of taking care of this moment. And the, See, here's a practical aspect of it. If you start becoming aware of things in order to get some future progress, you're not fully attending to what's happening. Because yeah. the corner of your mind is goal-oriented. Okay? If you fully take care of the present moment, 100%, a byproduct of that is that it moves you along. It's not fatalism or, pa- uh, or passivity. It has a dynamic force. But you're not trying to move yourself along. The process, do you see what I'm getting at? All
1: right, so basically there needs to be some sort of present, I guess, reward.
0: The present moment in order to... That's your word. I didn't say that. I know. I
1: know. I know.
0: So I'm... But we'll leave it at. That's fine. But then you know, so you'll do more of it. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I don't understand. In, in other words, you get the rewards and then you want to do more of it, like yeah. Pavlov's rat. Yes, I understand. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's what we're already doing. Okay. Isn't it? That, that's that's. But it's it's fine. You see, one of the reasons that Buddha was a skillful teacher is he didn't insist on non-attachment from day one. He understood. These are egomaniacs to begin with, all of us. And they get attached to anything and everything. Leave them alone for a while. You know, let them be attached to feeling. For example, here's something I get from people who are very new. They follow the breath. And then they have a hard time at first. And then suddenly they'll come into an interview and say, oh, I finally experienced it. I felt so calm in this last sitting. Oh, I guess I'm getting attached. Now, what I would say is, good. Please be attached. The day comes when, it is, when you, you let go of that coarse attachment, then you pick up a slightly more refined attachment, and, if, and finally, you, have, you let go of all of it, but you can't do it all at once. Okay, yeah. Do you see what I'm okay. Okay. I, I, I've made it less clear for you, but what, okay. <laughs> let me ask you, what's in back of it for you? You don't have to tell me, but you should know. That's self-knowing. Self-knowing is underst- learning to understand yourself. What is this question really about for you? And you don't have to tell me unless it's obvious. Doubt. Yes, good. Okay, so let's say doubt comes up. Now, because I do these things, I'm going to say, fine, doubt is welcome. But because there are a lot of things that are doubtful in life, we're being sold all kinds of things that are not true, advertised, right? And maybe this is one of them. Okay, I can't honestly say that when you're enlightened, that's the end of suffering. Uh, I'm not selling used cars. This is about our life. And knowing what I do know about life, just a little bit, is that the challenges just keep coming. But what we can do is we are better, better and better equipped to deal with whatever happens, whatever comes our way. And of course, perhaps, the, the last uh, deep challenge for all of us or for most of us is dying, um, but doubt you have, it's good that you brought that up and that you know it because doubt can be, it's like a tapeworm. Doubt will keep you from investing the energy to find out if this stuff is true. Do you see what I'm getting? Let's say if you doubt yourself, here are the doubts typically, and it may not apply to you. One is you doubt the teacher. What does he know? He's not from Asia. He's, you know, he's just, some, he's just making a buck. You know, he just, uh, uh, the other is you doubt the teaching. It's too ancient. It's from another culture. How could it possibly be relevant in, the, in this modern world? All those, but the main doubt is we doubt ourselves, okay, and that isn't limited to meditation. Now, if you don't take care of that doubt, that's sapping your confidence, your energy, which keeps you from fully applying yourself so that you can find out if this is all a bunch of nonsense or if it's true. So it's important that you take care of that one. Here, when the doubting mind comes up, is just be aware of it. Hear that mind. Don't grab onto it. Don't push it away. Be mindful of it. Just to could be, you might see what. Sometimes the understanding c- comes with it, and sometimes that can be reflective, uh, pulling over to the side of the road and reflecting. And but look, if you're going to spend all your time, the reason this is so because my, my mommy and daddy they, they it, and They dropped me on my head when I was four years old, and uh, you know, and then go over that over and over. Um, what the main thing is, whatever helps you free yourself of the doubt, so that you can. Um, Apply yourself fully to find out if this is true or not. How can you find you can't think your way through this one. You have to do the practice to find out if this is false advertising or if there's some truth in it. I think I've better I've filled yeah, you up with enough stuff.